Exodus 12, beginning at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up! Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go. And also bless me. The Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked the Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. The Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. So they plundered the Egyptians. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they'd been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for the generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. Do not break any of the bones. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the Lord's Passover must have all the males in his house circumcised. Then he may take part like one born in the land. No uncircumcised male may eat it. The same law applies both to the native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. All the Israelites did just what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron.
And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, and Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days eat bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during these seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised an oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb, All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. When did you... Last watch, a massive storm brewing on the horizon. It's a sense of foreboding and expectation. The clouds as dark as you could see are building and growing. And before you realize it, they have so filled the sky that day has become night. The rumbling of the thunders enveloping you before the storm finally breaks. Well, in a sense, we've had a similar sense of foreboding about the 10th plague for a number of weeks now. If you look back at chapter 11, where we were a couple of weeks ago, God told Moses exactly what was going to happen in this plague. Chapter 12 is all about the provision that God made in the Passover, such that everyone who was under the blood of the Lamb would be safe from this coming judgment of God. But now... Now the eye of the storm is right over Egypt. 
Only this is no ordinary weather system. This is a terrifying presence of the holy God of heaven. This is the judgment of a God who is bringing with him all of the righteous judgment against this nation for, amongst many other things, the way that they had refused to obey his command through the Passover. And this is the event that is going to give birth to the nation of Israel. Over the 430 years that it has been that Originally, Jacob and his small family first arrived in Egypt. They have grown into this enormous nation. It's going to be the exodus through which God delivers this nation from their slavery, taking them towards the promised land. In other words, exodus is either one of the biggest, if not the biggest event in the whole of the Old Testament. That's how massive this is. And that's why God patiently reminds the Israelites how to remember his rescues so that they would never, ever forget. Now, as we read all of that text earlier, you might have been thinking on a few occasions, haven't we read that before? (laughs) And the answer is yes. Yes, we have. If you just do a big picture sweep of everything that we've just read, Moses begins chapter 12, verse 29, to tell us the narrative of how God is going to rescue the Israelites. But then, flip down to verse 43, we get even more detail about the Passover restrictions. Then in verse 50, we go back to the story of the rescue. But at the beginning of chapter 13, we're into more detail about the the festival of the unleavened bread. And then there's a whole new ritual about the consecration of the firstborn. All of those interruptions to this great story should have you thinking, what is so important about the Passover, the festival of the unleavened bread, and the consecration of the firstborn? Feels a little bit like that detail upon detail that interrupt this great rescue story that is the biggest adventure story you could ever possibly imagine. Are these rituals a bit like the ads when you're watching a film on ITV? Just interruptions in the middle of what you're really wanting to watch. Well, of course, the answer is no. But why is the answer no? The answer is no because these are the details that God gives his people so that they would never, ever forget his rescue. So that they would never forget who he is and what he has done and who they are and what they should do in response And for those reasons, it's just as important that we never, ever forget. Not because we're Jews, we don't celebrate the Passover, we don't have festivals of unleavened bread, and we don't consecrate our firstborn. But all of these things are ways that lay a foundation for us to see with even more understanding who God is and what he's done and who we are and how we should respond to him in light of his rescue of us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why all of this matters. All of these rituals, they are interlinked and and meshed together so that God's people would never, ever forget his rescue. It's a night of watching that is always to be remembered. 
It's the big idea of what's going on in this enormous section of God's word. It's how I hope to expand it to you. If you look at chapter 12 and verse 42, our translation reads, Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. And that word that we've translated, keep vigil, comes from the Hebrew word that means to keep watch. In fact, if you've got an ESV uh, in front of you, verse 42 reads, It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This night is the climax of that battle between the gods that we've been seeing all the way through the plagues. Pharaoh and Yahweh, who's more powerful? Well, what do we see on this night? We see that Yahweh never slumbers nor sleeps. He keeps watch over his people. He protects his people and brings a just judgment against his enemies. And where's Pharaoh? Pharaoh's asleep. The so-called God of the Egyptians is woken by the judgment of God and that's what finally breaks his resistance. That's what's going on as he hit this climax of all of the plagues. There's two big points I want you to see this morning and then layers beneath them. The first one uh, at the end of chapter 12 is that God is always at work, even through the darkest of nights. And I want you to see five ways that God kept watch over his people as he was at work in this night. The first one, God watched over his people by judging the Egyptians. Verses 29 and 30 describe how traumatic this judgment would be. No one was spared. If your family had not obeyed the command of God to take a Passover lamb and to shed its blood around your doorposts, It didn't matter whether you were in the palace or the prison or out in the paddock. The judgment of God came on and killed all of the firstborn. As you've watched the trauma of what has happened in Turkey and Syria, there are almost an endless list of things that you are left with. But one of those impressions It's how devastating it is to see such enormous collective grief and sorrow at the same time. Throughout Egypt, verse 30, there was loud wailing, for there was not a house without someone dead. Matthew explained really helpfully for us two weeks ago how to see God's justice in this plague. And if you missed that sermon, please can I encourage you to go back and listen to it online because it's so important that we understand that all of us are sinners if we're to understand the justice and the mercy of God. God does not save the Israelites because they're the goodies. God saves this, his chosen people, because he has graciously made a way for them to be saved from the judgment they too would otherwise deserve. He provided a substitute 
through the blood of the Lamb. That's always been the only way that any of us can be saved because all of us are born sinners. It's the first way you see God watching over his people through the night. The second way is in the way that he humbled Pharaoh. Now, if you think about all of the interactions that Moses and Aaron have had with Pharaoh over the course of these 10 plagues, Pharaoh has been on quite a journey. If you can remember back to the very first time that Moses and Aaron confronted him in chapter 5, when Pharaoh was first told to let the Israelites go, he replied, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know, or as Matthew helped us to see, I do not recognize the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And then you get to the ninth plague that we saw just a few weeks ago, chapter 10. Here's the uh, I'm a God Pharaoh saying to Moses, and remember what he says is law and is never to be changed because he's a God. Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Now, verse 31 of chapter 12, changes his mind completely. Begs for them to come back. Summons them back and pleads with them, up, Leave my people, you and the Israelites, go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said. Bango all of the negotiations about, or you can take some of these but not the others. Just go, all of you, and not just that, and also bless me. We have no idea what Pharaoh meant by that. But what we do know for certain is that there is no repentance And no confession. What Pharaoh wanted was relief from the burden without any responsibility for it. This is a complete undoing of the then most powerful man in the world. And it was not Moses and Aaron's doing. God had promised that this is exactly what had happened. All the way back to Moses when he was in the burning bush in chapter 3. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. God fulfills his promise. But not only to Moses. Hundreds of years earlier, God had made the same promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they'll be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. God always keeps his promises. That gets you to the third way that he watches over his people through the plundering of the Egyptians. In verse 36, God made these all-powerful Egyptian lords favorably disposed towards the people so that they gave the Israelites gold and silver and clothing. You have to understand what is going on here. This is not the Israelites twisting the arms to force people to give anything. This isn't them stealing anything. This is the Egyptians willingly giving over their jewelry, their gold, their wealth, and their clothing, which is miraculous. Please see how miraculous this is. For centuries, the nation of Israel have been utterly impoverished as slaves. 
by the ruling Egyptians. And now, the Israelites are going to walk right out the main gate of all of their Egyptian cities where they've been living, wearing and carrying the wealth of the Israelites. This is absolutely miraculous. And the miracles don't stop there. Because there's also the size of the nation who are rescued. God had been watching over his people because he rescued a great multitude. Verse 37 tells us about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children were rescued. Now there's some debate about what the word that we've got translated thousand means. And if you would like to talk about that, please grab me afterwards. I will gladly speak to you about that. I think the text should be read exactly as it is said in our English translation. That we have 600,000, and perhaps it's better to translate it, fighting men. Meaning, in addition to that number, you have to count all of the non-fighting men and all of the women and all of the children. So you're looking at an exodus of somewhere between two to three million people. 430 years ago, we were told that Jacob and his 70 direct descendants arrived in Egypt. Under the watchful eye of God, he has blessed that people so that he fulfills his promise to Abraham to turn his descendants into a mighty nation. And he does so during the slavery in Egypt itself. It's worth reflecting on that for a minute. Because when we think about the blessing of God, we often think that if God is to bless us, we will receive abundance and bounty and a land of plenty where everything is going well. And ultimately, of course, that's right. And you get a foretaste of that in the Old Testament with the people as they go to the promised land. But ultimately, that's a picture of where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to fulfill all of the promises by creating the new heavens and the new earth, just as Ian was telling the kids. But God still blesses us here and now. And what the growth of the Israelites in Egypt reminds us is that God is still watching over his people even in the darkest of nights. God is still blessing and providing and richly giving to his people even when things are hard. And sometimes, sometimes our struggle is that we are looking for blessings on our own terms. And missing sight of the way that God is blessing us in the midst of a hard season. God is blessing his people. He does that in the way that all of these Jews leave. But it's not just the Jews who left. Here's the fifth and final way that God is watching over his people. Moses tells us, verse 38, that many other people, you might have an ESV or or more literal translation, might be a mixed multitude went up with them. And we don't know who was included in this mixed multitude. It could certainly have been a number of Egyptians. As we've read through the plagues, we've seen at various points, the Egyptians, some of them, feared the word of the Lord. 
They listened to what Moses and Aaron were saying. And there could well have been some Egyptians that went up with them. There may well have been some other nations who went up as well. We don't know the exact mix. But what we do see is that this group of mixed multitude haven't yet committed themselves to Judaism. That's why they're in a separate group. You've got the 600,000 fighting men and women and children, and then many other peoples. These are the hangers-on. They haven't yet committed to being a follower of God and a keeper of his promises. But they're there. And do you see the grace of God that is centered upon the people of God, but overflows to also bless this mixed multitude that comes up with them. And in a lovely way, there's just a glimmer of a foretaste of what a gathering of God's people on a Sunday in a church should look like. It's a lovely way in which over time, lots of other people begin to gather with us. They've not yet committed to being a Christian. But in the goodness of God, they get to see a little bit more of our lives and what the gospel means. Not that we're perfect people at all, but that we are people who keep out living out the gospel of coming back to God in repentance and finding forgiveness of our sins and growing to become more like Jesus. And as you spend time with the church family, you begin to see more of that. You see what it would be like to follow Jesus for yourself. Now, if that's you this morning, we are genuinely thrilled that you gather with us. It's our prayer that you would come to commit your life to follow Jesus for yourself. But we are glad that you're with us and can see something of what it is like to be part of the family of God. Now, when you look back at all the ways God watched over his people that night, isn't it wonderfully reassuring to know that God never changes. You've got all of these fulfillments, all of these safe keepings, all of these provisions and blessings, and what we are reminded is that God is always watching over his people. Even in the darkest of nights, even when the storm seems to be breaking all around, the Lord who watches over Israel never slumbers nor sleeps. And that's why it's so important, verse 42, that the Israelites were to keep vigil, to keep watching by remembering this night for the years to come. That's what holds the rest of this passage together. You've got, well, you've got the uh, 10th plague, you've got the Exodus, you've got the Passover, you've got the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the consecration of the firstborn. They are a constellation to commemorate the conquest of the king. That's how all of these rituals are designed to function. They are to reinforce the remembrance of what God has done. If I can put it this way, the Passover, festival of unleavened bread, consecration of the firstborn, they're the triple lock such that God's people would never, ever forget his rescue. And that's the second main point. God's rescue is always to be remembered. 
and remembered in such a way that not only do you remember what he has done, but that that remembrance gives you hope and confidence for who God is now and what he will do into the future. And that's what we're going to see as we look at these three acts of remembrance and how they work together. Firstly, this act of remembrance works through a meal that shows God's saving grace. A meal that shows God's saving grace. That's what the Passover is all about. It's what Matthew explained so clearly for us last week, which is why we're going to spend less time on this point this morning. But what's new in this section is who can join. Verse 38, you've got a mixed multitude. So can they celebrate the Passover too? And what happens in a few years' time is Israel eventually would be settled in the promised land, and perhaps even before then, they start to have their own servants, their own day laborers. Can they celebrate the Passover as well? Verses 43 to 51 explain God's simple rule. If anyone has committed themselves to God, and if the men in that household have shown that by taking upon the sign, the covenant sign of circumcision, they are free to celebrate the meal. That's the clearest, uh, the clearest summary of that comes out in verse 48. Um, our translation uh, uses the same word that we've already seen in verse 43 in saying foreigner. But actually, verse 48 is a different word in the Hebrew. You might think of it more helpfully translated as sojourner, to which we think, what well, a resident alien. So if you've got somebody who has settled with the Jews and has committed to being a part of them, then what God tells the people is that if all of the men in the household have taken on the covenant sign, look at the beauty of the inclusion in verse 48. He will become like a native of the land. Isn't that a lovely description of inclusion? Yes, Judaism and the Passover were exclusive. But they were exclusive in a way that extended an open invitation to include anyone who would follow the God of heaven and earth and his commands. And that's a lovely parallel for the church in the day in which we live. And such an important thing for us to have clear in our minds because we live in a world where our culture enforces its own intolerant view of tolerance and acceptance on everybody. So we need to know, as Christians, how to think of ourselves so that we can speak to our friends and our neighbors. Oh, you Christians, you're your own little special group. I can never be like you. Or, Or you're elitist in the way that you're exclusive. We need to know from God's word that God is calling specific people to follow him. But the invitation to be part of the family of God is sent far and wide to all who will follow the Lord's command. Not to enact the Passover, but to trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will do that then you become a native in the new covenant. You are welcomed to be baptized as a sign of your inclusion, to enjoy the Lord's Supper as that continual reminder of what it means to be a part of the family of God. And if you're new this morning and you've never seen a baptism, well, today's your special day because this evening you can come and see Mark and Frankie be baptized. 
and take that courageous step to be a part of the covenant family. Second way this night was to be remembered was through a festival to remember God's deliverance and call to holiness. Now, in the way that God designed the, the calendar for the Jews, every year, immediately following the Passover, was a week-long festival of unleavened bread. And we've already seen, chapter 12, some of God's instruction about what they're to do. We know that there's not to be any yeast anywhere near any of God's people. But here, Moses gives us two new pieces of important information. First one is in verse 5 where we're reminded when and why God's people had to particularly remember this festival. They had to celebrate this feast when God brought them into the promised land. That's interesting, isn't it? At that point, when they finally get to the promised land, God will have defeated all of the other nations who who in their own sin and rebellion deserved, in that sense, the just judgment of God, and God would bring the Israelites into the promised land, a land that was so rich and, and abundant and fertile that it's described as flowing with milk and honey. And it's especially then when they are to remember the festival of the unleavened bread. Why then? Because that's when they were most likely to forget what God had done. When everything started to be steady and they were surrounded by plenty, that's when they are most likely to be tempted to forget that they had not earned what they are now enjoying. You end up becoming self-dependent, don't you, when everything seems to be going well and it's so easy to forget our constant dependence for everything on God. And that's why this festival was so important. It reminded them, verse 3, that the Lord brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. They weren't mighty. They were powerless. They were the slaves in Egypt. They couldn't possibly rescue themselves. And they were rescued in such a hurry. They didn't even have time to add the yeast to their bread. So chapter 12, verse 39 with the dough the Israelites had made, uh, brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread on their journey on their way out. The dough was without yeast because they'd been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Part of what is tied up in this festival is a reenactment of the memory of the haste and the hurry of their escape. They didn't even have time for a packed lunch. They were, the bread wasn't even fully ready, but they were out because God was rescuing them at that moment. And yet, there's more to this festival than just a reminder of deliverance and haste. Second new bit of information is the way that the parents are to tell their children of the symbolism of this meal. And again, we've seen some of this before in the way that the Passover was to be explained to the kids. Now we see it with the unleavened bread. And this festival is supposed to be a time of personal testimony from the saved generation to their children. If you look in verse 8, it's a really personal time. I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. 
And there's more in verse 9. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. Now, if we hit fast forward very quickly in Jewish history, you will know that eventually God gets them into the promised land. They get really established. They disobey God. They break his covenant promises. He disobey all the prophets. God sends judgment through the Babylonians who take them off into exile. Eventually, they come back to Israel. And in that period, sometimes call it Second Temple Judaism because they have to rebuild the temple, some Jews took this commandment literally. We still know that today because there are modern Orthodox Jews who wear phylacteries. And inside those boxes that they have on their arm and their forehead are copies of this and a number of other texts such that they would always remember these words. Now, I, I don't think Moses intended this to be a literal instruction, but, but what's really clear is that this festival would set them apart and change the way they lived. The festival itself, look back at verse 9, the festival itself would be like a sign. Where? On your hand, because it's going to affect your actions. On your forehead, because it's going to affect the way you think. On your lips, because it will affect your speech and your praise. This this week-long abstinence of yeast isn't just a weird dietary thing. It's to refocus every part, hands, mind, lips, on how God has rescued his people by his mighty hand. And to tell stories of how God has rescued us personally. Now, we don't have an exact parallel in the New Testament. But it struck me this week that perhaps the closest is the weekly Lord's Day. Everyone else around us during the course of today is going to just crack on with work and sport and leisure and shopping and whatever else it may be. And Christians stop. Christians gather together. Why do we do it? We remind each other that this is the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We remind one another as we gather that we are rejoicing and trusting and believing in him who brought me out of my slavery to sin with his mighty hand. This looks weird to a watching world. But that's okay. Because God's people have always looked weird to a watching world. What matters is not that the world thinks that we're like them though we were once one of them, but that we are faithful to the commands of God. Then there's the final act of remembrance. Tonight was to be remembered through a consecration to remember that God owns everything. If you dig a little bit deeper, we haven't got time this morning, I think you could see Different aspects of God's saving grace that he's emphasizing in each of these rituals. When you get to the consecration of the firstborn, God is pressing into the Jewish mindset the idea of redemption. The idea of buying back. The firstborn males 
were set apart. Verse 2, whether human or animal, verse 2 of chapter 13, that is, whether human or animal, they belonged to God. It's really clear to see the connection to what's just happened in Egypt. We're told in verse 15 exactly what's going on. The angel of the Lord brought judgment on all of the firstborn who weren't protected by the blood of the Lamb. So what about all the other firstborn, you might think? All of the other firstborn, whether male, sorry, whether animal or human, and symbolically, through them, all of the families and all of the herds that are going to come, all of them belong to God. Which then leaves you with a question. Well, then what do you do with something that belongs to God, human or animal? Verses 11 to 16 give us some detail. More detail follows in the Mosaic law. But here's the big picture. Basically, if you've got a clean animal, which would be an animal that you could use in the sacrifice, like a lamb or a bull, the firstborn male is to be sacrificed. If you've got an unclean animal, verse 13, like a donkey, which you can't offer as part of the sacrifices, then you can redeem that unclean animal through the substitute of a lamb because that animal belongs to God too. But if you don't want to substitute it for a lamb, you have to kill the donkey because the donkey belongs to God. You can't just choose not to give to God what belongs to him and do with it what you like. Then what about the firstborn sons? Verse 13, they could be redeemed. They could be bought back, not with a lamb. When you get to Numbers 18, the redemption price for a firstborn son was set at five shekels of silver. Now, some of you have already got further on than me, and you're already thinking, this is what Joseph and Mary were doing when they presented Jesus at the temple. And in fact, Luke uses this very passage to explain what's going on. Joseph and Mary took him, Jesus, to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. Now, even if you've been in church for quite a long time, that sounds quite foreign to us. We've lived in our Western world with such a mindset that it has so influenced us that we think we're independent and free. But built into the Jewish rhythm of life, every single time any family had their first male son, they were reminded again and again and again, we belong to God. We belong to God. Now those rules don't apply to us in a literal sense today. But do you see how they lay the foundation for us to understand the spiritual reality of what we learn in the New Testament? In 1 Corinthians, we've seen Paul, I think on two separate occasions, refer to the fact that you, Christian, you were bought at a price. Not at the price of five shekels of silver. At the blood and the body of the Son of God. You're not your own. I'm not my own. We've been bought. And that shows us how this consecration of the firstborn is even more precious under the new covenant than it was under the old. What do you have going on in the old covenant? The human firstborn 
who belonged to God was redeemed through an offering. What do you get under the new covenant? The divine firstborn, who is God, became the offering for us. He is the firstborn. His death and resurrection make him the firstborn from among the dead. He is the firstborn of many brethren. He is the firstborn over all creation. And he willingly gave up his own life so that whoever trusts and believes in him will become heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Born sinners can become firstborns in the kingdom of God that will never end. What a staggering picture of the love of God. What an amazing reminder of the privileges that are ours in Christ. I didn't know that Tim would read from Ephesians 2 at the beginning of the service. He couldn't have picked a better passage. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. Now, what does it mean to be a co-heir of Christ? To have gone from being an enemy to being seen in the eyes of God as the firstborn with him. God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You look back on some of these rituals and it's perhaps tempting to think Passover, festival in leavened bread, consecration of the firstborn. <sighs> Glad we're not living in the old covenant anymore. Don't miss the triple lock God has given us to remember forever the greatness of our rescue. For the Jews, it was from slavery in Egypt. For us, through the death of the eternal firstborn of God, it is from our slavery to sin.